The wheel of time turns and ages come and go, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the Third Age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time. But it was a beginning. The Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book club, where we read through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series and pretty soon start watching Amazon's upcoming Wheel of Time TV show. I'm Caleb Wimble, and with me this week, as all weeks, are Katie Jarvis. Hi. Dan Katinsky. Hey, everyone. And Keely Frank. Hello. You can find us at wattcast.net and support the show at patreon.com slash wattcast. Your support means a lot. Even $2 helps. You can join us there at the Two Rivers tier. You can also join us on Patreon, the $5 Tower Valentier, and you'll soon get access to special bonus episodes where we talk about things like Wheel of Time short stories, graphic novels, video games, failed TV pilots, and soon, possibly, Dune, the, uh, the novel and the new film adaptation, since there are potentially a lot of resonances there with Wheel of Time. Email us questions, comments, and corrections via contact at wattcast.net. With the subject line questions, we will answer those here on the show. For those unfamiliar, The Wheel of Time is an epic fantasy story about a gang of small-town teens and their school dance chaperone who get whisked away to a world of witches and warlocks and beastmen. Oh my. Last time we talked about chapters 6 to 10 and the first book of the series, The Eye of the World. We saw the two rivers attacked by animalistic monsters called Trollocs. Moraine revealed herself to be an Aes Sedai here to find a certain set of teenagers, our main characters, before the Dark One does. She and her warder, Lan, convince the kids to run away with them for the sake of their families and the village. This week, we're digging into chapters 11 to 15, and they are a doozy. But first, uh, Dan, what, what have you been reading or watching this week in the meantime, uh, other than The Wheel of Time? Uh, I, I finally finished the series everyone seems to be watching lately. Um, Squid Game, I started watching it due to FOMO and feeling like I was out of the loop on the latest memes and everything um, conversation-wise happening on the internet. Liked it, I think, right off the bat. Uh, and Caleb, we've had these conversations, but I think the length was way too long mm -hmm. and I it could have been better as a film or a shorter series. Um, and it probably would shock no one to hear that it was pitched to Amazon yeah, as a movie or yeah. to, Net to Netflix as a movie, right? Yep. Originally. The script was a film in Netflix. I was like, hey, we can turn this into nine hours of TV. So <laughs> in streaming fashion, they increased the length and added a bunch of plot lines that were kind of a little unnecessary. So overall, I really enjoyed it, though, and I liked some of the colors and the characters. And it was a vi very vibrant series, kind of different because I don't watch a lot of Korean drama. So it's always nice kind of sh like mm -hmm. shifting gears and switching from American TV to like other countries. So. Well, for those those who, you know, probably like the, the two to three people listening to this who don't have <laughs> Netflix and haven't seen their highly aggressive promotion of, of the show, uh, what what is Squid Game? What are Squid Games? Say Korean version of Hunger Games meets Battle Royale. Um, 
It's a game where impoverished um, citizens are kind of roped into playing a series of children's games. And I guess at this point, it's not much of a spoiler since they reveal it in the first episode, but the games end in a lot of deaths mm-hmm. of the contestants and the prize is a substantial <laughs> amount of money that they're all competing for. I, I think the creator himself, like pretty obviously stated, it's very much inspired by Battle Royale um, and subsequent mm-hmm. um, movies that have come after that and, and books. So it's turning into a, like a fun little genre. I'm kind of a big fan of that, like the Hunger Games style um, players having to compete to the death. Ultra and, yeah, violence. The ultra violence to make a political statement that that's often kind of shallow, but kind of ties in anyway. So hit or miss with like the capitalistic ties. People have been talking about how that's been a trend since 2019, where hating on capitalism is easy to kind of like write about in fiction and it's kind of overdone in very um, unnuanced ways. So um, I think that's an interesting like commentary there about like how that's kind of been taken now since I think the recent like American elections and turned into a, a plot device for a lot of things or kind of an overall theme. So some handled better than others, mm-hmm. but Squid Game kind of sits somewhere in the middle. It's not completely terrible or kind of, it, it's super overt. And in your face, but there's some nuance there. Yeah, it's like it's barely a metaphor, right? Yeah. It's like you have all these people living in Korea uh, who are who are deeply in debt, and some of them in like medical debt because Korea, like the U.S., is one of the few countries that does not have a fully fully public health system of some kind, and they're all desperate. It's kind of key to the show that they are joining of their own quote unquote free will. Like, like everybody has ample opportunity to not play this game. They're given the chance to le- to stop playing the game. Uh, at various points inside. There's even like this nod to democracy as a system in the game where you can by a simple majority end the game at any time once you start playing, even once they all know how deadly and awful the thing is. But then they stop and in the first or second episode, right, and quickly realize, well, is it really a choice if people are as desperate as they are, if real world society makes it so hard to exist and to pay back the debts they owe them, um, then they're willing to risk their lives for it in over-the-top, wildly colorful ways. The other, the non- non-topical thing. Um, we're not going to spoil the last um, handful of episodes on this one. Maybe maybe in a few weeks we might come back to it. But um, a lot has been made about the, the subtitles and the dubs in, in the controversy here, right? There's an article by Vice um, about how um, it's like mixed feelings of a lot of Korean Americans and English-speaking Koreans seeing like a Korean show take off in a big way here, but being very frustrated about what that article and a lot of the people they quote call very poor translation. Although it turns out some of that has to do with the fact that, that Netflix, very confusingly, has multiple sets of subtitles available in English for any given show. Uh, And apparently the English closed caption subtitles, which are on by default for most people, are much worse and and, or like more ham fisted um, and and more truncated than the non closed caption English subtitles because they're based on a different script. They're based on the dub script, which has to match the voice or like that, you know, the lip movements of the characters to dub over into English. So there's like two layers of filtering going into the closed caption ones uh, which are the ones I wound up watching which may explain why I thought like oh this dialogue is not particularly strong even though I like some of the characters there that you know it did feel a little there's that repetitive thing you mentioned because they're stretching out the whole um, the, a film script yeah. to a show that needs to be but yeah but I guess that's also like a PSA for people that haven't watched it yet watch the watch it in Korean and not the dub unless you really have to because you know it's, <laughs> you know, it's a live action Dub, but also the English subtitles on Netflix that are not closed caption are apparently the the more faithful ones and the ones that like there'll be some lines where it's like um, 
three words in the closed caption dub because they had to fit it into the mouth movements in English, which are not going to match the mouth movements in Korean. But then the the proper the proper subs uh, were um, like several sentences or something like like real extreme differences uh, like that. I'm wondering if the normal subs have just the white text. And I think the ones we watched might have had like a faint black outline border around it. And those might have been the closed caption ones because that's usually the style they use for closed caption uh, text. So curious if we actually watched the wrong one. But I think more curiously, uh, Katie, you said you started watching it but may not finish it. I'm, I'm kind of curious if you have like thoughts around that or you made a comment earlier like offline about that and I'm kind of just interested. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, I guess I was, I started off very skeptical. I'm not sure why. Maybe it was just the, the violent nature I knew was going to be about the show, which... I watch violent things all the time, but I, I don't know. When I started off, I was like, I'm giving it five minutes. And my husband was like, wow, five minutes. That's like, that's not a lot of a chance. Anyway, the first five minutes passed and I was like, okay, I actually really appreciate the the psychological aspect of it. Um, and so a, a lot of things in the first episode were not quite what I expected, which I liked. Um, and I, th- I thought it was interesting how <laughs> there's like this moment where they're all begging to leave. And then they are given the chance to leave and they even vote to leave. And then, of course, they all end up back there. So I think that that's just interesting. And I liked how the second episode gave us more of like character development, which I wasn't quite expecting. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, after that, the next few episodes that I watched, I think two or three more after that, um, I just kind of got into the, okay, there's this violence and it's just, you know, boom, 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 everyone's dying. And uh, I mean, I, I think ultimately that's the reason I might not continue. Like I, I feel like, okay, I, I understand what they're doing here. I understand what's interesting about this. Um, and I'm not sure if I need to follow it through to the end. Um, but mm-hmm. I also think that I'm having an interesting experience. Like I, I have a one-year-old baby and I noticed that I'm much more sensitive to violence now than I was before mm. I had the baby. And I don't know if that's like a thing that happens or like a hormonal shift or, or, or like a protective mother instinct, but I'm noticing it in all the TV I'm watching. So that also might Mm. be coming into play. Not like I'm like super offended or anything, but it's just impacting me slightly differently. Like the, the gratuitous nature of, of some, some violence. That's super interesting. And yeah, the, the having it over the course of, of eight episodes or nine episodes, whatever, whatever it is, versus even condensed down. I don't know, like even Battle Royale, the movie version, I haven't read the novel. That was an exhausting two hours with the, the amount of brutality, especially inflicted on kids in Battle Royale and in Hunger Games. But then it's like it's done, right? It's like it's like over. It's less than a third of the movie is all that happening. But then like sitting with a show or just episode after episode, I can I can. And that's interesting that it is. Um, that that is maybe changed a bit for you now. Yeah, right. Like if it's a movie, I'd be done with it already. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I won't get into it too much because it's a short story. But I I read a lot of things this past week and saw a lot because I had uh, two long plane flights. Uh, was also writing things on there. But but consuming a lot of media. The only one that I will briefly highlight because I think really deserves more eyes is a short story written by Andrew Milne for the Silver Blade, published a couple of years ago. It's called the D- the the Dynasty of Lilith, the Righteous 
and unmerciful. It is a uh, really fascinating uh, little sci-fi story that sort of unfolds into an epic Earth has been attacked and destroyed by some unknown alien species. The narrator, as happens in, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of like Silver Age sci-fi stories, is fairly quickly revealed to be some sort of artificial intelligence, maybe a ship or something left behind by humanity and remembering them and is on this mission to go and destroy these uh, aliens who have destroyed Earth. I am loath to give away anything of the plot of this uh, beyond that because it is a wild ride of twists and turns in just a few pages. Andrew Milne has a, a really, really strong sense of voice here. And I think a voice given to a non-human character uh, that is different than the way that we see those ca those characters often depicted in, in science fiction. Um, it, it's really interesting and uh, very rewarding. It was emotionally rewarding in ways that I did not expect. I don't, and I don't usually expect for stories that are of this huge scope and talking about like speaking of violence on a grand scale of like the elimination of the human species. It's very interested in in some philosophical conversations with other big famous sci-fi stories and horror stories even like I think it's Harlan Ellison's I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Um, parts of it remind me a lot of the of Ender's Game and some of the Ender books uh, by Orson Scott Card for the things it's dealing with there and, uh, and, and other parts have um, some Ursula K. Le Guin resonances so if any of those are, are, are points of interest for anybody listening, I highly encourage you to check it out. It'll take you, depending on how fast a reader you are, 20 to 40 minutes to read. I will link it in the show notes. Uh, you can read it for free online and you can order the issue of Silver Blade if you want a physical copy. Strongly recommended. Uh, the main thing that we'll be discussing last before getting into the actual chapters this week is uh, Gentleman Quarterly, or I guess just GQ nowadays, their Inside Wheel of Time article by Zach Barron, which is digging into the new TV show, which we will very soon, hopefully, be watching ourselves, watching along, experiencing together with all of you listening as we get our initial drop in November of the first few episodes. It's like two or three dropping at once, I think three, and then we'll get the rest doled out over November and December. I know uh, Katie, Keely, and Dan, you've mostly just seen the little the little snippets of this article that I've been posting to the chat. I think something that's clear uh, from, from the get-go in the thesis of this article is just how many eggs Amazon is putting in this basket, the gargantuan size of the budget of this show they, uh, and their desire for it to be Amazon's Game of Thrones and land with that, that same cultural impact. They talk about how expectations have changed. Like the first season of Game of Thrones, HBO was spending about $6 million an episode and that number was climbing and climbing and climbing over the course of the show. And Amazon is starting at an upward of a reported $10 million per episode from the start of this show, which is just, I see head shaking, staggering. Rafe Judkins, talk, uh, the showrunner and executive producer, talks early on in the interview about one of the crazy things by now is how willing networks are, how willing Amazon is to, to just hear him say, yeah, I'm going to build the whole two rivers in outside of Prague, uh, where they have just built this, they built a brand new film studio. They like, they went to film in Prague. They've got all the Prague architecture and everything for the cities and the countryside um, there to give it, give it that, um, that central European flavor. Uh, and then they built an entire gigantic set of sound stages, multiple football fields long. They built the whole two rivers and then literally burned it to the ground by the end of episode one to cover we are, where we have been so 
far. To their credit, I've seen some like fake fires and it's like even in this day and age, like 2021, it's yeah. so hard for people to do realistic fires. So I can kind of understand why they wanted to burn down something legit because you don't, it mm -hmm. doesn't have the same impact and it's very hard to replicate real flames in like TV and film. So whenever they don't, it's so easy to tell when it's fake. So like, I don't know. I, I kind of respect that decision, even if that's like a crazy amount of money to throw at it. And the thing to do once upon a time, like in the 90s, right? You would have gone to probably the closest old, maybe like English or Scottish village you could find that still had some 16, 1700s character, right? Or maybe even like shot outside of, of Cambridge or something or, or Nottingham. And you probably would have like maybe burned down one barn you would have you would have found or built an old barn and burned that down for uh for the rand and tam scenes and one or two burning buildings and then otherwise you would have shown like flashes of fire and things falling and sparks and, and you would have intercut to characters running between maybe then you would have zoomed out at the end when they're on the hillside and have like a model burning for uh for the two rivers or whichever parts of it but yeah now it's all got to be movie scale right like the expectations have changed so much we have to see a film's worth of of destruction four different czech construction companies evolved apparently working around the clock on the these massive sets of sound stages they've got yeah i mean the article really gets into i think it, i think it probably has a skeptical tone overall like uh, i think all of us kind of did when we were chatting about it about the ability of this to possibly be game of game of thrones again or to capture the zeitgeist in that way i don't know to me game of thrones felt like lightning in a bottle uh in terms of where people were at post lord of the rings in waiting for something to capture that scale of the lord of the rings movie um again people were hungering for that vaguely medievalish high fantasy and uh, there weren't a lot of movies that followed lord of the rings that really captured it in that same way and then you know television was blowing up in a huge way rome had uh, hbo's own rome did not do so well uh when they first aired and it was like this big elaborate set piece costume drama cost a fraction of what game of thrones did and they were reticent and actually I, if i'm recalling the history correctly hbo kind of wound up uh, absorbing what was going to be Rome season three or season four budget wherever it got canceled into Game of Thrones and going to like the countryside of Spain to film all this and just changing what people expected from a show. So yeah, if, uh, I, I think if anyone's interested in hearing what's going on on the set, it's a pretty lengthy, beefy article about the production of the show, what Amazon's hopes are for it. Um, and, you know, maybe regardless of the show's success, Amazon's virtually limitless pool of cash and, and, and Jeff Bezos's own personal wealth are enough that even if the show does not hit in the same way that they might be hoping it will that they will at least keep going to a satisfactory conclusion they've already ordered season two right which is kind of unprecedented in itself for something of this scale that they're that confident this is going to take off they're pouring half a billion dollars into this lord of the rings prequel the article does mention the the thing that we uh might have briefly mentioned before that barney harris who is playing matt coffin uh has already been recast for the second season and they're filming with a different actor and no one will discuss this or say why um so there's only like wild speculation on twitter of what would would have happened there um and yeah we have no idea i think whether it's um, something, you know, per, it could be anything from personal tragedy to something went down on, on set that I don't want to speculate about why everyone could be so quiet about it that that sometimes suggests that lawsuits are involved and people are literally unable to say anything, but it could be really an anything, uh, right, that's go going on. So, you know, I hope it's nothing terrible and I hope that um, I hope that it's uh, whatever, whenever we find out the reason that it was 
um, an amicable part, uh, parting, but uh, I guess we'll I guess we'll find out. Anybody have any thoughts on what they saw of that or the little the little pieces pulled out about how they're they're essentially filming a movie every two months with the schedule that they've got in there or, or uh, what they talked about and what they're representing of the various characters and creatures and whatnot? All I can think is it makes me excited. Uh, I I mean, I, I really can't wait to see what it's going to amount to. And I'm I'm glad we're diving into the book. So we kind of have like this level up on, on what we're going to be looking for when we go into it. And I also like get this zoomed out weird thing. When, whenever I read about that much money being thrown into an episode, it's like disturbing, but it's also like, I don't know. It's kind of cool that, that, that it's like art, you know, being and storytelling being valued very highly. And that obviously speaks to what, what it means to all of us universally. And then at the same time, you're just like, oh, gosh, that is so much money. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll, yeah, we'll find out pretty soon uh, whether it was put to good use, hopefully. I don't know. At the very least, it sounds like no matter what we think of the show, it will, will be spectacular in the spectacle sense of the word. However, the writing and performances and all that go. But I don't know. I have, I have, I have vaguely high hopes for now, too. Uh, so this week, uh, as I mentioned, we're digging into chapters 11 to 15, and I, I believe I recapped it slightly, but again, uh, we, we, we have fled the two rivers, or we are fleeing the two rivers. Moraine convinced everyone that the Dark One is after these teenagers, and she and her warder Lan are going to get them out of here for the sake of their families and their village. Dan, uh, do you want to tell us what happens in chapter 11, The Road to Terran Ferry? Sure. So our party, like, rides for their lives to flee the the flying bat creature Drakkar if I'm pronouncing it right mm-hmm. uh, and then Moraine uses the one power to strengthen the horses like she she pretty much gives them like a huge dose of caffeine magic and refreshes <laughs> like the human's exhaustion but she's still exhausted she can't recharge herself so she she's pretty much acting as like the charge cord for the entire team um, at her own expense but to keep them moving along uh, they reach the Terran River and pressure the ferrymen to take them across yep so we uh, so things are moving along we're, we're getting out of here uh, we're starting to see more and more of what Moraine can do and maybe of her tactics and what she is willing to do uh what yeah what do we what do we think of uh what do we think of this chapter so one thing that i wrote i started taking notes as i was reading and i wrote down that they make a point to say multiple times that land's horse is white um or land's horse is black and moraine's horse is white and so it's the two of them like riding together and then we know rand is on a gray horse cloud and mm. tries to like get in between them at one point and i was like oh my god symbolism <laughs> like, holy cow i completely missed i wrote down convenient that while running from the jackar the gray horse tried to force itself between the black <laughs> and the white horse like of course we get it <laughs> and that's the the daiichi symbol again too yeah. right we've got li- literally the two of them form forming that is there right oh my god i can't believe this is my <laughs> my i don't know second third fourth time reading this particular novel and i miss that every time <laughs> i wonder how overt they're going to be about that with the show version if it's going to be like an overhead shot oh and showing like the gray kind mm. of trying to get in between the black and white a lot easier to kind of like catch on to that symbolism in, in a movie format <laughs> whereas like, yeah. like apparently caleb and i just glossed over that so that's that's pretty interesting. We get um, this extremely English feeling, I think, of uh, of what the two rivers folk think of the Terran fairy folk, who are not really that far away, right? The, the ta- it's like what um, 
like a night, a, I guess it's a night's ride. I forget how many hours away, but there's several times where it's mentioned that Rand had met very few people from Terran Ferry, and he's talking about how they seldom venture down into what they call the lower villages with their noses up as if they smelled something bad. Uh, and then goes on about, uh, they've all, they've got like these real, like, like heavy, heavy laden prejudices about the next village over. Terran folk had a reputation for slyness and trickery. If you shook hands with a Terran fairy man, people said you counted your fingers afterward, which um, I don't know. That felt very much to me like this, you know, like old, like old English town, like feeling of we, we don't trust anybody who wasn't born here or not, not from the next field over. And it's a pretty brief chapter. Uh, we it, it, I, Maybe because they're fleeing so quickly. This is where they bribe the fairy master up in the middle of the night, right, to come and come and get them across. Uh, any any other thoughts on eleven? I mean, this this happens more later, but I was starting to pick up on it. That I, I don't know. I find it really funny how often they just go to bribery to kind of make their way across the next few chapters. And, mm-hmm. and like this one was like a pretty big one, but Lan apparently just has a lot of cash to throw around at everyone. It's like their their solution is always just like cash and then magic recharge, then cash. And it's like he's like I, I think it's not in this chapter, but there's another one where it's like Lan's hand went for his purse again. <laughs> he's constantly he's just like <laughs> he's just flinging money at whoever to get cross with. <laughs> the power of capitalism at work. <laughs> There's a couple things that I will talk about as we move through the chapters that don't entirely make sense to me that feel kind of like an easy out for the author at different points where it's like, okay, well, how are we going to get them through this area? Cash or like, <laughs> you know, oh, they can't cross water. And it's like, that feels so easy to me. And then also kind of hmm. doesn't really make sense. Because, you know, they're, the whole thing is that they're trying to hide from the Dark One or what, you know, his many nicknames. And that they don't want people to know where they are. So mm-hmm. he's bribing people to be quiet. But if they're bribable, wouldn't the other people be able to bribe them too? For more money or for something else? So it's just mm-hmm. like, you're showing that this will work for you. Just assuming that they're going to be loyal to you and not loyal to themselves. And so I just, that's like a... a many of my pet peeves but that's one of my pet peeves is that it feels very simple yeah they they seem to have an infinite supply of wealth to kind of and i'm sure they'll kind of explain where it's coming from or like if the Aes Sedai are just very loaded but just like they use the cash mm-hmm. and just like they do seem to have a lot of connections for trying to stay under the radar i do think the wealth disparity is probably pretty reflective of of late you know late feudal and renaissance era european economies where that where the value of of a dollar the value of a coin in a city versus a, a rural area where nobody leaves their entire lives is drastically different and what and what you make in a given day I mean you know like Danny even even growing up in in Thailand like the the extreme disparity between what like 20 baht uh 50 US cents around like the um the late 90s or early 2000s would buy you in Bangkok or Chiang Mai versus what it buys you out in the country and out where like rice farmers and fisher uh, and fishing villages were and all that night and day like like people make more money in the urban centers in a lot of these agrarian economies uh, than you might make in months or, or a year if you're if you're out in the sticks so I mean that part to me that like, I don't think anything about that stuck stuck out to me in terms of like how much wealth uh, although we also do see like Moraine shows up wearing a load of jewels and things right when she arrives in the village but I do definitely feel what y'all are saying in terms of the this the go-to like there's a lot about this that feels like a Dungeons and Dragons campaign to me in terms of like the way that the, the problem solving approach comes in every way and the party starts to rely on okay step one attempt to bribe yeah. uh, or no attempt to, to convince step two attempt to bribe step three threaten with violence uh, or step four break out the spells and the, the displays of, of fantastical magic power like if none of this works well uh, yeah maybe that's a good place to get into chapter 12 <laughs> Keely do you want to do you want to 
tell us about this one? This is uh, chapter 12, Across the Terran. Yeah, so they get across uh, River Terran on the ferry, and once they get to the other side, all of a sudden the ferry is magically like floating away, um, and this giant fog comes in um, from kind of nowhere uh, and freaks out ferrymen and the people that are with him, and he's like yelling at them to go get the ferry. It seems kind of obvious that Moraine has something to do with it. Some of the people are like, I'm what's happening (laughs) like i thought that was kind of odd um and then they they camp in is it to me it kind of felt like um like a beaver dam but they were Hmm. in like under it like that's how i was picturing it in my head is like this giant beaver dam that they were like burrowing into that ended up being like a cave kind of i that's how i pictured that um and then moraine and uh egwene start talking more about power and they bring Mm -hmm. up i was calling it sidon and sidar i don't know how you guys are saying it um but they talk about the female and male half of the power um yeah we get we get a lot revealed in this chapter in terms of how the world works and how the power works uh how how moraine works and operates and you said I, I think you said the fairy the fairy floats away into the mist. Uh, doesn't it like outright sink in front of them? Am I remembering that wrong? I, I thought it like actually uh, like uh, they cross and then it just mysteriously <laughs> uh, just uh, yeah, crashes they, it down in. They mention a whirl, the yeah, a whirlpool kind of just like consumes it. Right, oh, so, like, that's right. It's okay, like a magical yeah. whirlpool that just kind of appears out of nowhere and then kind of just like. Okay. Everything's gone. And I guess Moraine man- mentions um, the reason that Lan is the one bribing everybody and handling all this is because, uh, oh, she says like outright, um, you must handle it. He will remember too much as it is. Speaking of the ferryman and no help for it. If I stand out in his thoughts, dot, 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 then that will be bad for people chasing after them. This is where we get, uh, there's a little extreme, a passage that reminded me so much of Narnia, of The Hobbit, of like a lot of um, kids fiction from that era where Rand, Rand is like, um, he-, he has, I feel like this kind of almost smug satisfaction that Egwene is suddenly like not enjoying this as much as before. It's kind of the, uh, uh, and he, it's a little bit ugly. I think uh, he's like, she was getting her adventure. He thought glumly. And as long as it lasted, uh, he doubted if she would notice little things like fog or damp or cold. There was a difference in what you saw, it seemed to him, depending on whether you sought adventure or had it forced on you. And I remember like almost identical passages to this in a lot of, a lot of books I read as a kid about they go off on an adventure and then there's a passage about, well, it turns out adventures are actually awfully nasty and dirty and wet and and uncomfortable and sleepless things uh, but then here that's paired with like rand feeling kind of smug that he knew this was all really bad and dangerous and and some of them dared to be excited about it i i had that same passage underlined which i think is kind of funny because i didn't even underline that much but i wonder why i did that i just it just stood out to me and it's kind of an interesting turn then when we find out, um, I don't know, I feel like Egwene starts to get throughout this whole section of chapters more, well, less excited about the adventure and more, you know, uh, concerned about the danger. But at the same time, mm-hmm. she has this exciting aspect to her experience that, that Moraine has taken her under her wing and she's been told that she can be pretty powerful as well. So it, it is uh, interesting and definitely um yeah, Rand is, is a bit jealous. <laughs> did we already have a hint before that Egwene could channel, and this is really where we get that affirmed for sure? Did, did Moraine mention something about it before? I'm already forgetting prior uh, episode coverage, or or is this really the moment that we learn that she can touch the one power? I mean, if, if they don't outright say it, it's beforehand. Uh, it's definitely confirmed now, but I think there was like strong hints that she could. Um, it's sometimes hard to kind of differentiate what we've already like learned from like the movie and kind of like the knowledge there versus what's actually been stated. Um, in the 
book, but mm. she definitely, there's a lot of foreshadowing that she could be a very powerful character later on. And we learned from Moraine about how the two halves work of the one power, and maybe we had hints of this before and in the prologue. Uh, and she like literally spells it out here that we have, um, we have uh, Sayadeen, the male half of the true source, and Sayadar, the female half, which... Uh, this is interesting. Uh, work against each other and at the same time together to provide that force. So that's maybe uh, getting into the Daiichi um, and in, into um, my, my sort of understanding in, in Taoism of the, of the dualism there inherent in these equally necessary and opposing forces. And uh, again, my experience with Taoism is limited to having read the, the Tao Te Ching um, in, in college and then just seen a lot of Chinese movies <laughs> where it's usually used in, in fantasy contexts which is to say I know basically nothing uh, about Taoism, but I do get the impression that these, that the gender um, binary idea is actually built pretty heavily into that tradition. Uh, and it comes up a lot in terms of, um, in terms of, oh, I, I forget which is Dai and which is Qi uh, uh, of, of the two, if that is the, br the breakdown, but that the um, it's actually, I think, the the opposite colors, if I'm if I'm correct, in in Taoism, where where uh, where the dark half of the teardrop is usually associated with the feminine. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, somebody needs to write or call into the show to tell me if I'm just butchering um, this entire tradition um, in here. But that the but that that is the side that is associated with things like water, uh, which it also is here. We we will find out. But it's associated with water, um, with femininity. Um, also with a certain mo like with fluidity and and with grace and with the shadows like all these things come in and then um the white half i believe is more it's associated with order uh and and with masculinity in that tradition which is you know that says something uh, that says a lot about society and and about the a lot of traditional or orderings of, of society um but uh, get, getting back to wheel of time lest I, lest I drift too far into philosophy i barely know anything about anyway uh we learned that we have confirmed that sayedin is tainted by the touch of the dark one, like water with a thin slick of rancid oil floating on top. The water is still pure, Moraine says, but it cannot be touched without touching the foulness, and only Sayadar is still safe to be used. So it's kind of spelling out here why there are no male Aesodai anymore, and why any any man who can channel is really, really bad news that has to be dealt with immediately. I also went and read the, uh, I've been reading the glossary interspersed throughout just at random, and some of the entries are just so good and helpful uh so i don't know i would recommend doing that to anyone reading it for the first time but i did read the one power definition during this chapter and it just it, it was really a well-rounded and long explanation but worth worth a read i thought so i actually had written down that same passage that you guys did i put the page <laughs> number and wrote down that like you know the whole thing about adventure we see kind of parts of maureen power here so i was trying to get a better idea if we actually know kind of what she can do because mm -hmm. so she walks up to like the horses and all of a sudden the horses are like not tired anymore but they say like well they'll run themselves to death unless kind of make them sleep mm -hmm. and so she can heal in some way horses and people but not herself they say that mm -hmm. a couple times and she can manipulate water and wind we saw that with the fairy but then they say this a couple times that she can make herself appear bigger than she is. Mm -hmm. um, like that Rand is, you know, on his horse. and He's like, holy shit, like she's somehow almost as tall as me. And oh my God, is she getting bigger? Um, and so I'm just trying to kind of like understand more of what they're getting at with her. 
and like what she can and can't do um because i was wondering like so she can't heal herself is she taking away the Mm -hmm. exhaustion from everyone and then that gets put into her or like i don't know this it's just weird magic concept i'm trying to wrap my brain around that i don't get i can promise you that we will get exhaustive detail of, of the mechanics of the one power if that if that helps that we will we will really get into it and i think i don't think i don't think it's in these chapters but i don't think it's spoiling too much to say that i think it, it's moraine or someone else at some point gives the analogy that um that directing the one power on herself would be akin to somebody trying to lift themselves up in the air by their own bootstraps, essentially. Um, that there is a way in which forces are connected in the way that the force emanates through um, a wielder of the one power that makes it impossible for her to heal herself in, in that way. Um, that, it, that it would be equivalent to, you know, like, oh, I can easily lift up a stone and I could ev- even lift up another person if I, if I strain myself a little bit. But the best I can do is like jump up briefly with myself and I'm not going to be able to lift and suspend myself in the air. And that's sort of the explanatory analogy. But, but I do promise we will get we will get probably more mechanics of this magic system than you could want in a million years uh, <laughs> at some point. Although this, this does lead me into um, the fact that, uh, you know, like Rand, Rand keeps trying to eat. We're getting most of these conversations via Rand eavesdropping right and from and literally like sneaking up behind their tent to hear Moraine explaining these things to uh to Rand and and you know when when Egwene expresses that did you really think I can learn I can become an Aes Sedai and Rand like jumps up cracks his head against some logs and Tom Marilyn grabs him and and says don't be a fool it's beyond you now boy um to me, this really feels like like this is Egwene's story here. And it, it, this is where it's starting to feel oddest of all that we're still in Rand's perspective and sort of like torturing around to get us into other people's heads. I don't know if anybody else felt sim- similarly at Parts of Fear, although especially the pages and pages we get of these conversations he, he's overhearing and that, that Moraine expresses. But we're getting pretty close to our first perspective split. Do we want to go into, speaking of Moraine and her motivations, uh, they're all like trying to get explanations and want to know if she really just destroyed the fairy. And she says, uh, you all want explanations, but if I explain my every action to you, I would have no time for anything else. Um, and yet she is willing to give these pages and pages of explanation of how uh, the one power works for us uh, handily. And she starts talking about the Ajas here. And speaking of the, the male and female half of the power, we learn about the red Aja who find and uh, quote unquote gentle men who can um, touch Sayadin, uh, and before they die uh, or presumably kill a whole lot of other people along with themselves. Um, oh, there, there is so much here on what happened before the Aes Sedai hunted down all the men who could channel in the breaking of the world. The Red Aja holds as its prime duty the prevention of another breaking of the world, hunting down every man who ever dreamed of wielding the One Power. But she also reveals that um, some of the women die too, and that it is hard to learn without a guide. Uh, the women we do not find, those who live, often become, well, in this part of the world, they might become wisdom of their villages. So this gets back to something Katie uh, picked up on um, that I did not my first time reading, but I think Katie, you saw clear as day, even though it was not said expressly, that that perhaps that our that our wisdom that naive might be doing something more than just like uh, like herbs and and poultices here right that potentially that there are a lot of women who who touch this power without knowing that's what they're doing and the Aes Sedai are doing kind of the Jedi thing uh, in in the prequels you know like going throughout the galaxy finding um finding the young ones who who are sensitive before they can be a danger or or in Star Wars case before they can um be outside the influence of the Jedi and their their particular monopoly 
on power. I don't know. Did anybody else have any thoughts about all, all, the, all the, these revelations here? I certainly thought that was interesting. Uh, and when I was like reading in my glossary, that's kind of where I got it solidified what you said that uh, it's interesting that for some, it's like a inborn ability that's going to happen no matter what. And they just kind of need a guide. And it's like, oh, I see. It's a good thing that Egwene was ready for adventure and jumped on this trip with them because otherwise she mm -hmm. would have kind of been going at it without a guide. And I thought it's sort of funny in the glossary, it says, for a woman, the death that comes without control of the power is less horrible, but it is death just the same. So I, I'm like, mm. it's interesting that, um, yeah, it's like the men, when the men can't control their power, they bring down the whole world with them. And when the women can't control their power, they kind of just end up dying in a less awful, but, but still dying way. Um, I just find it's very interesting. I, and I like the parallels that you drew there to other stories in that way. I mean, in some ways that's, that's interesting for like a society analogy in the fact that like most like school shooters are men, like younger men that have like trauma or like depression mm. and anxiety. And they have really terrible ways of kind of releasing that. And it manifests in violence that often affects other people. Whereas you rarely hear about a female shooter that does like the same exact thing. So, and it's usually only in the U S if you do right, where there's like so many guns everywhere that that's something that can feasibly. Yeah. But even in the U S it's like so less common to, or like you mm -hmm. look up like serial killers and the percentage of women that are serial killers compared to men is astronomically different. So I think, I don't know for me that the revelation of that was kind of very like on the nose of like hmm. men when they can't handle power or like different things going on internally, it manifests in violence towards others. Um, whereas you don't get that as mm -hmm. much with women. And that's sort of being like what, what men are taught from the time that they're, that they're born, that like this, that aggression is strength and that like, yeah, that, that sort of out, that, that is the way that you assert power when you don't actually have any is by, is by acting out in that way, being kind of literalized here. We, and we're sort of, it's, they're putting together here what we saw in the prologue, right? With Luz Theron, that the, re the reason beyond the, besides that like real world aspect of sociology, there, there's the additional reason that the dark one has touched uh, the one half and that, and that like we saw Luz Theron didn't even, he's, he killed everyone around him, his family, the entire court, like mur and did not realize who they were just went completely um, broke, like his mind was broken and he's just having all these hallucinations maybe straight from the Dark One before uh, the figure, I forget if we get his name there, shows up and he'll, here's his mind. And we get uh, maybe some like, I don't know, like quintessential, um, quintessential what we have since Jordan wrote this would call toxic masculinity uh, where, where Rand is observing uh, Moraine doing like doing the stone thing with Egwene, right? Like like to test whether Egwene has the one power. And um and granted there is an element here of, you know, there's there's yeah, Rand Rand is concerned for her safety and everything. But the way that it manifests, even in his own head, is Rand's fingers dug into his knees, his jaws clenched until they hurt. She has to fail. She has to. Like he's just literally saying it. Like he, he's like <laughs> that, that that he wants Egwene to fail desperately for a number of reasons here right and that how many of those have more to do with him than than to do with her uh i i wonder at this point and uh and and she just you know she she comes out of this moment with just pure joy like a cry of delight when she learns that she's going to be an Aes Sedai right like this is fulfillment of a dream for her and Rand's response is just is like just dark horror and uh and desire to see this not happen 
I, I felt like I tried to read that as Rand having concern for her, but when I thought about it, I was like, no, in fact, he should be happy that she's powerful because they're in all sorts of trouble. And the more mm-hmm. powerful people around him and the better equipped she is to protect herself and them, the better, right? I don't know. Well, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of Rand, so I wouldn't like try to like go out on a limb to defend him. But at the same time, there didn't seem to be a lot of jealousy at play there. Like, it, it seems very sour mm-hmm. of him to, to, like, have those thoughts and be so, like, kind of nasty about it. But at the same time, especially in a, the chapters we're going to be discussing um, soon, like, they're still so weary of Moraine, like, and I said I in general. Mm-hmm. Like, he seemed like all three of the, the farm boys are very much against her, no matter how much she's, like, done for them. Like, they, they're very distrustful. They're not sure about her yet. So... In some ways, it just seems what? like he's so... Com- and, and she she gives him good reason to be in the next chapter. Yeah, right? it starts to... Continue. Yeah, I didn't want to, like, jump too far ahead. But, like, yeah, it starts to, like... She starts to get a little, like, suspicious or kind of just, like... She's also a little sour, too. Like, she started out as this, like, fairy-like woman that was, like, very into them. And now she's, like, she's kind of growing tired of their behavior and kind of their longing for home. So it's, like, I think the tensions are getting bigger. And, like, he clearly has feelings for this woman. and. I think he's just getting sad because he's like totally gravitating back towards like the farmlands and she's so interested in mm-hmm. becoming an Aes Sedai and getting this power and going off. So I didn't see a lot of fragile masculinity or like jealousy from him. I more so think he just like he wants things to stay the same. He's a very complacent person and she's yes, so interested yeah. in changing and becoming this new entity and getting power. And I just I think he just doesn't like that. And he kind of wants her to stay the same way. He He's scared of her changing. Which is a which is right. a little yeah. fragile or like jealous, I, I guess. But like he's also just kind of a simple-minded individual. Like he wants complacency and mm-hmm. he wants to be a farm boy. So to him, this is like really upsetting. <laughs> I like that read on it. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Like the the fear of change. I mean, I think you can almost like you can go back to the root of like most things and be like, ah, it was the fear of change or, or just fear in general. Yeah. Yeah, and that I mean, his whole world is kind of crumbling. Even down to the mm-hmm. point where, like, his parents might not be his parents. So he needs, mm-hmm. like, this one person that he's grown up with to be kind of, you know, normal or whatever for his world. I also thought it's interesting that, you know, they're so distrustful of Moraine and so, like, they don't want Egwene to be part of this or anything. Mm-hmm. Slightly ignoring the fact that, like, they also have some kind of power or something linked to the bad guy. But because the women are having power, oh my god, like, (laughs) we can't have the women have power, you know, they just, I think it's interesting that they keep making him focus so hard on her, and maybe that's like a, you know, deflection, let's bring up all the coping mechanisms, but Mm. I just thought that was interesting, and my Jordanism of this chapter is, at least twice, they write that Rand notices that Egwene's uh, eyes are shiny, not from the moonlight. Like, hmm. she is experiencing emotion, but it's not just because it's dark outside. Yep, yep. It's like, what the hell? Like, okay, what are you saying? That, like, she's happy and it can't be from anything? Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good call out. I did notice that. We're probably going to get a lot more of them. I sympathize on that writing level uh, as someone who also, like, struggles to find new ways <laughs> to, to display the same uh, emotions or reactions across the course of a novel. I think I agree with uh, with your characterization, uh Dan, that it's not, I don't think it's envy that I'm seeing in Rand here or seeing much of, I think it is all rooted in fear. And I think it is rooted in um, the way, the ways that he, that he sees the world. And, and I, and I think that's probably something that plays out 
that we see all the time where family members, parents, siblings, you, you have like, you have this genuine concern for the people in your life. And that sometimes manifests in wanting to hold them back uh, for uh, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons, sometimes for maybe, I don't know, a little bit of both, maybe something gray if we're getting back into our, our gray horse shooting between the, the black and white one here. But, but we, re we really should get into chapter 13 choices because so much reflects on uh, what you were just saying, Keely, what you were saying, Dan, what you were saying, Katie. Uh, actually, Katie, do you want to tell us what goes down in chapter 13? Sure. So this is choices. Um, the party travels north uh, for a period of time and um, Land teaches the boys to use their weapons as Maureen trains Egwene in the ways of the one power, which I, again, it's kind of the setup of that was interesting to me because I didn't have much faith that the boys were going to become very proficient in their um, weaponry, but I felt like I had more faith that it seemed like the more sophisticated thing happening was Maureen teaching Egwene uh, some, some things about the one power mm. and the less sophisticated thing happened was Lan just being like, could you boys just like wield your weapons and try harder and <laughs> uh, that's kind of funny um uh maureen lets lets the party know how serious the stakes are um which i think is something she's continuously having to do and that is something that like as we get into the later chapters i'm like okay why do they get it yet they need to be more cautious say <laughs> less like why do they keep having these mistakes but anyway she's trying to tell them um and then they reach this city of uh Berlon. is is that the proper way to say it Sounds right. I think uh, Berlon or Berlin. Berlin, okay. Uh, and they get to this inn um, where it, it gets kind of compared to the inns from where they came from and the city where they came from. And uh, this is an exciting time for them because this is kind of a, a bigger, more populated place than they've ever been in before. Um, and we get a new kind of risk here, which is the Children of the Light, also called the White Cloaks, um, that are harassing the city and kind of patrolling around. Um, doing what should maybe be something on the good side because they're looking for the dark friends, but but the way that they're kind of policing the city feels very oppressive and uh, wrong. Mm -hmm. So that's another interesting aspect. We get the almost the literal Sam Gamgee line uh, at the, oh, who is this? Is this Rand saying it? Either Rand or, or Matt uh, saying, like, I never, I never thought I'd be this far from home. <laughs> Uh, you know, as, as they're looking back over it, it was, oh, remember when Watch Hill seemed a long way? That was two days ago. That was, it seems like forever. So, you know, we're still, we're still working through our, our Lord, Fellowship of the Ring uh, tropes here, get, getting our way out before this journey to Berlin. Oh, to, to that point, did anyone notice the, the similarities between the fairy scene here again? It's just like everything is literally following yeah. what they did in Fellowship of the Ring. The, the whole moment, it was more dramatic in Lord of the Rings and it was kind of more subdued here, but like, the Nazgul is like chasing them on his horse and like at least in the cinema version I forget how it is in the book version but like Frodo has to like jump onto like the barge or whatever that they're like taking oh, off. Oh that, that's pure cinema they they actually took that from here if anywhere. Oh really? Is yeah. that I, I swear they have like a fairy scene in, in the book version. Is that like completely? There's no there's no running and leaping that I recall. I don't think it's urgent I, like they. But they um, do I think they do cross one though but like yeah it's, you're right the cinema version makes yeah, it much yeah. more climatic with like Frodo having to like dive on before he's like caught like last minute by the the Nazgul on their horses, but just like the, the having like fairy scenes like early on in a book, like everything is following the formatting mm -hmm. of Fellowship of the Ring yep. down to the T. 
That's even something they bring up in the GQ article, that apparently that was like very heavily pressured or encouraged by Tor, which I think it, it might like it was important for me to remember in a way that I really find easy to forget because it's not how fiction is written for the most part anymore, that that Jordan was almost like sort of in a way contracted to write these books in a particular way um, of a particular genre to capture a particular popularity, a zeitgeist, in a way that maybe nonfiction is still commissioned that way these days, but fiction is not. Fiction is almost always you have a complete draft you have a, or a complete manuscript and you go pitch it um, or you go and go right to the publisher and try to publish it yourself, but that he was, you know, uh, Tor is like, yeah, we want our, we explicitly want our own Lord of the Rings. And so he's very much beginning from a template there that I'd kind of forgotten about until the GQ article, Zach Barron started going into that. That That's sort of the way that Japan still works for a lot of their like manga, the, the graphic novel equivalent um, hmm. is that they have popularity, like popular styles, like shown in his like young men's like action. And there's a lot of tropes and kind of generalizations they have to follow to kind of fit that template of like what sells well. So it's, it, it's kind of built off of like what used to be done with novels, um, how you're like describing it with like you have templates of like, hey, this was successful. And they still do the same thing mm-hmm. with like cinema now. It's like you have successful superhero movies that kind of make templates for the next like 10 until one of them decides to break the mold and do something that actually ends up being popular. We get Moraine's line where um, speaking speaking of letting them know the stakes again, where she just lays on the table before I let the dark one have you, I will destroy you myself uh, talking to the boys, which you would think uh, to your point, Keely, that this would be sufficient motivation by now if they can like they're, they're afraid of her. Right. You think they would take this seriously to some extent that she's like, no, no, you like it is so important that the dark one not have you. I will kill you. Don't don't uh, misunderstand me here. We get a little bit more revealed about the one power. Again, this is where we learn Egwene reciting that she's learned. It's the it's actually, it's called the one power, but it's five powers. It's earth, wind, water, uh, earth, wind, fire, water, and spirit. And uh, we get revealed here. Egwene says, it doesn't seem fair that men should have been strongest in wielding earth and fire. Why should they have the strongest powers? And Moraine laughs and is that what you think, child? Um, is there a rock so hard that wind and water cannot wear it away, a fire so strong that water cannot quench it or wind snuff it out? Um, so we're again getting that sense of that there are there there are these oppo- like these both opposing and unified dualistic forces um, that make up the one power. We learn a bit more about um, the freeing of the dark one, the forsaken. We get more about the old blood itself being strong in the two rivers and hints that that might be literal in terms of uh, and things coming back from a past time. Uh, and Moraine hints that there, uh, that there was somebody else uh, who was able to wield the one power, she thinks, in the two rivers. Uh, and then sort of dismisses, like Egwene tries to guess who it is and Moraine gets exasperated. It's like, ah, oh, you got to forget I said that. Uh, she, she's on a different path. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. There, <laughs> there, there's another nascent Aes Sedai we, we've met already. I thought that was interesting and it, I, I like noted that. I was like, okay, I'm excited to find out who that's going to be. And I also had to underline this quote that says, it was the men who went mad and broke the world because I was like, oh, I just, that's like on my feminism quote in books list that I could just pull up. It's just a really <laughs> pithy one. <laughs> and then we get the teens learning about their first city and everybody else is like, y'all think this is a city? Uh <laughs> Wait until you see a city, but you know it's still a staggering to them. As we had summarized, we're we're meeting uh, the children of the light, who everyone agrees hate the Aes Sedai as much as they do dark friends. Maybe even consider the Aes Sedai dark friends. We get our stay at the inn here. Um, 
I like these in characters a lot. I'll just say that I started like to immediately connect to like these little figures at the end here that just sort of come into the story and form the cast here. Um, uh, a Avon, who oh, this might not be at the end yet. This might be the gatekeeper who's like, oh, don't you worry, mistress. I ain't seen nobody. I ain't seen nobody, and he's like disappearing back behind the gate. I ain't seen nothing, <laughs> and come and coming in. There, there's a lot of like. These little stock characters, but fun stock characters, I think, in, in Berlin that, that we start to meet here that are a little more on the cartoony side sometimes than the two Rivers folk. But there's like a fun memorability to them, I think. Oh, boy, we get we get so much here in terms of what's going on in the world and the Stone of Tear or Tear. Uh, tear it's uh, differences about who pronounces it that we get prophecies because um, we're learning. We're learning more about this self-proclaimed uh, dragon. Loghain, right, who is conquering things um, and could be trouble, maybe, if he marches on terror, because there are prophecies saying that, that terror will never fall until the people of the dragon come to the stone, this big fortress um, prophecy there. Um, and that that is actually the, that Amador is the stronghold of the Children of the Light, uh, which is, seems to be in terror as well. Um, so that's unlikely to happen. Anything else we want to cover in this chapter before we move into 14, the stag and lion? Is it this chapter where, so we meet uh, Master Fick, like right as they get to the stag and lion. But is mm -hmm. it this chapter where he tells, is it like the guy that works in the stables who like something like the most horrible yeah, yeah. name for a person <laughs> like i wrote that i was like that's a rude name like why would you do that to someone my parents never thought i amount to much they really called me mulch and as a small mercy they changed it to much oh i did write down um a quote then that i thought was interesting so it's it's similar to what katie was saying when she's talking when morian's talking about the the men kind of ruining everything um, mm -hmm. she says, uh, but they were insane, not evil. Hmm. And I, I latched on to that so hard working in social services. And I was like, yes, thank you. Let's stop demonizing the people that have mental illness. <laughs> it's like, that's, you know, I latched onto it that way. Still not wonderful terminology to say that they were insane, <laughs> yeah. but I did like that. She was like, no, like they just, they had some problems. They were, you know. <laughs> devil worshippers or whatever. Oh yeah, that's true. She does she does correct because Egwene is like she's saying that they're the same as the Forsaken, the 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 Aes Sedai who went to follow the Dark One deliberately. Um and and Moraine's like, yeah, no, 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 it's it's, it's not it's not quite that's not that's not really what happened for for most people. It was uh it was their minds breaking. So I guess uh, chapter 14, the Stag and Lion, we we mostly learn about the world's news here and we hear more about the victories of the self-proclaimed dragon Loghain. Um Moraine Mention somebody that she's seeking out here named Min, who will shortly, uh, I believe in the next next episode's chapters, become uh, a more a more prominent presence. But the biggest thing that happens here is that Rand has a nightmare visit from Baalzaman, um, which is very close to uh, to two different mythological names or religious names. We've got we've got Baal, Baal who is, you know, like a, a major um, biblical and 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 uh, Mesopotamian era, area, Babylonian area god um, and, and uh, deity, and in Christian tradition, eventually a demon, uh, Baal, uh, which then we also get um, Baalzebub, uh, Lord of the Flies, which is pretty close to Baalzaman. So uh, I don't know how how quickly did it become apparent who this was. Uh, I think pr probably even not knowing at the beginning of of this nightmare, uh, he, he certainly got. 
a lot of aesthetics of evil, shall, shall we say, uh, going on here. And, um, and that's probably most of the rest of the chapter, right, is, is Rand experiencing this nightmare. Yeah, I, I even had a note about the, the Beelzebub kind of comparison. What is it? Um, um, Beelzeman or, or whatever he's called. Mm-hmm. And it just it kind of reminds me of like that Christian liter- literary fantasy of Pilgrim's Progress by John John Bunyan, just where like everything is slightly mm. shifted, where they use like super similar names. So he's already gone by what like Satan or whatever Satan, Shaitan, yeah, or Shaitan, and now he has like Beelzeman. Um, so it's just like super similar names. He's not being very subtle about that at all. He name drops our book title. Finally, is this the first mention we get? He's in, are you expecting glory? Balzaman says power. Did they tell you the eye of the world would serve you? And I think that's the first mention we get, but no explanation of what the hell the eye of the world is. Right. Yeah. Well, they did something similar in the previous chapter. Tom was telling a whole bunch of stories and he keeps telling the same story. The great hunt of the horn. And mm. isn't book two called The Great Hunt? It is. I was like, <laughs> foreshadowing, foreshadowing. <laughs> I almost feel like the way they've been like building the story up is that, especially this late in the game, like what, what are we on? Like chapter 14, like talking through chapter 14. And like, mm-hmm. I feel like up to this point, there's so many more interesting things happening in the world. And we're getting like the like stable boys kind of like secondhand, thirdhand <laughs> story, like telling of it. And it's like we're so late in the game and it still feels like we're all this cool stuff is happening in this world, but we're still getting kind of a, like we're still in inns and we're still like kind of wandering around in the woods. <laughs> and it's like I'm wondering when it picks up to the point where they actually get involved with the real world affairs versus just like kind of like teetering around it. Like I feel like we're almost halfway through the book and it's still kind of like secondhand accounts of everything going on and we're just hearing it from like other characters and mm. a lot of world building happening, but we're not getting a firsthand account of it. Well, the villain is showing up here himself, right? I mean... Spoiler alert, we learn in the next chapter this is not really a dream or not a traditional dream, right? Because um, Balzaman demonstrably is killing rats with his power in in the dream. Uh, And then I think we will find in chapter 15 that it turns out uh, there was a whole lot of spontaneous grisly rodent death around the inn this night. So, but yeah, yeah, they're not like, they're not tapped into the politics of anything at this point, right? It's like the, they're just fleeing for their lives. We got inns. We got uh, maybe the Dark One showing up here, um, telling Rand a lot of things, saying like um, cryptic stuff about the the strings that have moved you have been centuries weaving. Your father was chosen by the White Tower like a stallion roped and led to his business. Your mother was no more than a brood mare to their plans, and those plans lead or led to your death. Um, which maybe is hinting at a lot of stuff from the first chapter of Dune, speaking of. I knew we'd get to there eventually. This is maybe the first moment where when I start, when I've, I've, I did not read Dune until after this. And in, and the first chapter of Dune, I'm suddenly like, uh, all the stuff about the Bene Gesserit and the, the breeding program and, and their role in the Empire. So I'm like, wait a minute, are we getting, I don't know, maybe I'm giving up too much away by drawing connection here. Any, any other thoughts on this, uh, this chapter and nightmare sequence? Uh, without saying anything more, I will say that in watching Dune last night, which I'm not going to discuss, there were so many connections that popped into my head. Um, and, that, and that was certainly one of them with the Bene Gesserit and the, and the Aes Sedai. I was like, oh, wow. Anyway, I, I thought I did go back and read the prologue around chapter 14 or 15 because I felt like when I read the prologue, at the beginning, at the onset, it was like very confusing mm. to me and hardly related to what came after. And then here I was like, oh, okay, so I, 
I'm seeing the tie here. And that was interesting to do um, just to sort of put the stakes a little bit higher about what's happening to Rand and the potential risks that he's running. And like, is, is he going to be overcome by this Satan and end up, you know, possessed and killing his family? Like, I hope not. And I don't think so, but I, I think it was, it was interesting to read the prologue again with all this new information that we had gotten by chapter 14 or 15. Which then brings us to chapter 15, Strangers and Friends, where as I already gave away, like Rand learns his dreams might have been more than a dream uh, by way of by way of finding uh, these rats around the inn and learning that he was not the only one who was having these dreams, right? That per Perrin and Matt were having um, their own encounters with Balzaman. Uh, Rand meets a young woman named Min, who claims to see strange things around Rand and the rest of the party. Uh, Rand then explores the city of Berlin a little bit, runs into a furtive Padden Fane, who some will recall was the peddler who lost everything in the attack on the two rivers. Kind of a strange brief appearance from him. And then we have a, a disturbing encounter with the White Cloaks alongside Matt, uh, with some maybe also disturbing behavior from Rand here. Uh, speaking of the the like little um, stock characters that we get around the end here, I I don't know. I, I I'm usually not into this sort of thing, but I was really digging the the Master Fitch and uh, and is it Sarah uh, the cook the this little exchange about about her cat and and the and the the innkeeper blaming the cat for all these dead rats all, all over the place and Sarah's like he, he's a cat. What do you think he's supposed to do? That's a, it's his job here. He's uh, I mean even though he doesn't the cat doesn't normally break the rats necks and leave them out in the open all over the place in large numbers. But, but these two characters, I just found really in, endearing the little dynamic here, even though it's like literally something out of, um, I, I like almost like, if not Renaissance, then like medieval sort of puppet plays or like a, like Shakespeare stock characters in the winter's tale or something like that. I feel like they, they would be chasing one another off screen, having, having these arguments back and forth but ultimately ni neither can go with can go without the other and and sarah's like sort of threatening to um to quit the inn you know it's like if you want her if you want her if you want her cooking it's her kitchen and uh um just uh it's uh maybe it's just that i liked it's a nice reprieve from you know conversations with the devil in dreams and all that and, and we get these, these little moments here no i was just gonna say i, I definitely second that i found I found the characters, even though, like you said, they're a little, a little more cartoony and a little more playful. Like the Verlon characters are much more engaging than some of the ones from, like the Two Rivers. So they stand out a little more. They have a little more unique personality-wise. Um, like the stuttering of like the gatekeeper, or whatever, just like breaking mm -hmm. sentences and kind of like rambling on or shifting and kind of being very cartoony and like kind of all over the place. Um, and the like, just the playful banter between the innkeeper and the the cook. It's just. They stand out more because there's such a huge cast already and a lot of characters are just kind of minor background characters that when they did introduce back, um, who's, I'm like totally spacing on the name, but in this chapter when Rand encounters the the character from the earlier chapters in like the alleyway that he stumbles upon. Padden Fane? Yeah, I honestly, he didn't stand out to me enough for me to remember like really what his role was earlier. I was like trying to mm. remember which, I had to go to the glossary and I was trying to remember what his role was because like. I think I was mixing him and Tom up a little bit um, and they're all kind of like meshing. So yeah. like, I was like, wait, which one was this again? So I had to like kind of go back and read and his personality. So I think to your point, Caleb, that like the personalities do seem to stand out a little more and be a little more fun this time around versus like the first villages and places we've been. Have, have you guys read The Name of the Wind also? Mm -hmm. I, I really, I, I really like that series. Um, 
but this part, I think one thing that uh, that's done really well in the name of the wind is all the characters just really come to life. And it's similarly like they're always kind of visiting mm. these little towns and then traveling to another place and, and you get to know all these new colorful characters. And this part of um, the eye of the world felt very much like that to me in, in a good, a good solid way. What did we make of one new character in particular here named Min, who I believe this is where, yeah, this is where Rand bumps into her. Moraine was looking for her earlier. I thought it was kind of interesting what you were describing. Um, and I wrote down like, sayer question mark. Um, but I did, this is kind of the chapter where all of like the tiny things started to really stick out and get on my nerves <laughs> with these people. Uh, especially Rand. Like, I knew that Rand was going to potentially get annoying. I've heard that. <laughs> um, but, like, yes, female can, like, we can wear men's clothing. Like, it's just <laughs> clothes. How many times did he have to be like, but I think it was uh -huh. a girl. Oh, my God, she was wearing pants. I think it was a girl. And it's like, <laughs> who gives a shit? Just, like, move on into the character development and stop focusing so hard on that. Yeah, that and he even makes a similar comment with, like, the, I think women would find this guy attractive. In the dream sequence, he's like, I think women yeah. would find this guy <laughs> it's attractive. It's okay, Rand. It's okay. <laughs> like, you could just say he's an attractive guy. You know, to, like, write that off with a little bit of a disclaimer there. <laughs> Yeah, she's very androgynous, though. It's like, like that's that's what I got yeah. from that like description. It's like I think so, but I'm not sure. But like, you, you could have just described it as androgynous. But I don't. That doesn't give me a lot of faith that there's going to be a lot of queer characters later on, or that it's going to be handled very well. Mm. I think that speaks to um, kind of like the the small town mentality, though, right? Like mm -hmm. we see that in the United States very much. That like small towns, it's very much a not safe place anything but kind of like the heteronormative you know female male that's it like there's nothing else uh so i i'm not super surprised that we see that from people they're supposed to be in a small town um i did caleb as you were talking about the article i was scrolling through it and the uh judkins something like that yeah like yeah. Rafe judkins he made it a point to say that he's trying to focus on the more like progressive parts of the character and of the books for the show because he doesn't want it to be like typical fantasy where the female presenting characters are plot points and mm. sexual violence against them and that kind of crap so it's going to be really interesting to see how he plays out with these characters and like if it, if he's actually going to accidentally fall into all the stereotypes yeah and he even talks about the that small town aspect right with it with his own upbringing and the, that's an interesting thing for people to read in the article too judkin's own recollections that is him right about growing up uh, and the conversations with his mother uh that they were having in in, in utah and somewhere i think occurs in in the course of this um judkins is gay i believe if, if i'm recalling correctly that comes out um in the course of it and he and his he talks about these interesting conversations he had with his um i believe mormon mother or at least they lived in a heavily mormon area as he talks about here growing up where starting to connect things about the experience he was having not connecting to masculinity and to masculine expectations with his mother's frustrations about uh, about being a woman in the world in in the uh, in the 80s and 90s especially and um and some of the bridges that they were drawing there and how that informed his his reading of the series so so yeah, I agree. It'll be it'll be interesting to see how, and we already talked about those of us who've seen the trailer, right? How the trailer, at least the teaser they did for this show, is very very heavily focused on um, on the role of women in this world and in the and in the story and and in those characters. Um, and yeah, I, I am actually Min is especially going to be um, interesting to see um, 
how, how, how she gets treated there. This conversation is largely about uh, the things that she sees around each of them, and she sees a lot of a lot of things. It's all, it's almost so dense her the the visions that that she has, if that's what they are, around the rest of the party that uh, that we don't necessarily need to spell into each of them what she sees with the different people, but she but there's something strange surrounding all of them and lightning flashing around to them. And any of the particular ones that did anybody latch on to any of the symbolism or the the imagery here? Uh, or were you, were you more focusing on like you know the human element of of this conversation? Well, I was curious because I think I was confused by how it worked because initially the way it was described it made it sound like she saw things behind them or radiating out of them, like there's like auras around people. Mm-hmm. But then a lot of her descriptions are very visual, like she was having like visions of those characters or kind of like yeah. it was like in her head. So I couldn't tell if it was a blend or like I don't know what did what did everyone else think there because I, I was getting a mixture of she sees things around characters but then she also sees like very vivid imagery of characters in di- different locations and everything so I didn't know how that worked with like walking around and you're doing your daily life like does she just is she constantly outside of her own environment and getting transported into other people's heads I was wondering about that too because some things it seems are like sparks or like energies and then other things I'm like then is she just picturing like this tower hanging over someone's head? Like, is she actually seeing it or is it more of like a, yeah, like a vision? So uh, I think it was interesting to try to see how that works. And, um, you know, I, I'm i like maybe de- trying to develop a sort of similar quality in one of my characters in the novel that I'm writing and I'm ha- having trouble doing it. So I am sensitive to the fact that like it's it's a difficult thing to do and to do clearly and to figure out how to do. So I was kind of trying to think of like what's going right and wrong here and how can I use that mm. and learn from it. And she ends that conversation uh, or, or Rand ends it saying, ah, oh, he starts to think that she's maybe crazy the way that she's grinning at him. I have to go meet my friends. And, and she's like, go then, but you won't escape, uh, which could mean a number of things about uh, these visions here. We get the the, the Patton Fane encounter. Um, yeah, like like you said, Dan, it's almost, it's almost like, uh, w- would this even register? It's so, it's so brief a thing. And, and his character, I, I strongly suspect you hinted like, getting him mixed up with Tom. And I even mentioned before, like the way that it sort of felt like to me in the early chapters, Gandalf got split into three or four people, like Moraine for one element of Gandalf, um, uh, Tom for no- another element, and then Padden Fane for a third. I, I strongly suspect Padden Fane and Tom might have been the same character in in the first draft, um, and then got split off as Jordan got more affectionate towards Tom, and Tom became a larger and larger um, character in the story, uh, and and I'll explain my reasons for that why when we get to them. But but that's just me putting putting a possible bet in here. I don't know if we'll ever know at this point, or if this will come out in any interviews or or anything. Um, but but I but I do have reasons for thinking that. Uh, we get this moment with with Rand uh, meeting the White Cloaks, and what what could be this like very familiar passing police stop uh, of like this sort of um, Terry stop, but not not quite a stop and frisk uh, of. Uh, of attention drawn, and then Matt goes and is Matt and and launches a, a really ill-conceived prank in the middle of all this. And then Rand starts acting really weird when when the tensions are heightening and things are looking really dangerous. And Bornhall, the White Cloak, is is interrogating him and angry that Rand is avoiding his questions. We get this passage: the tingling filled Rand. The heat had grown to a fever. He wanted to laugh. It felt so good. A small voice in his head shouted that something was wrong, but all he could think of was how full of energy he felt, nearly bursting with it. Smiling, he rocked on his heels and waited for what was going to happen. Vaguely, distantly, he wondered what it would be. 
What what is even happening here? Do we have a clue? So I kind of felt like this was like Voldemort's son through Harry. That like this was uh the you know the Satan guy who was like mm-hmm. okay I know where he is I know how to kind of mess with him through the dream. Let's play this out. Let's see how he's gonna work. Like that's kind of what it came across as or how I was kind of picturing it was that you know it was like if you were standing there there'd be like a visible difference in Rand. You know, the same thing with Harry, where, like, he would, like, crick his neck whenever Voldemort started to come through, you know, kind of mm. like that that Henry Cavill, like, reloading his shotgun arms <laughs> in Mission Impossible. Like, that's kind of that vibe that I was getting from it. I was so sad that wasn't in the movie. And... <laughs> Sorry, you just made me think about it. Wait, wasn't it? No, like, that was only in the trailer, the sound effects, and then when the movie actually, like, the oh, scene happened, okay. I was very disappointed. But, yeah, sorry, random, I just... Remember that scene, how amazing it is seeing him loading his arm. And his mustache appearing out of nowhere in the early CGI version of it. <laughs> so we end the chapter and we end our, our chapters for um, for this episode, learning that Nynaeve has showed up and is inside the inn, Parrot announces when they get back, uh, so who apparently bullied uh, the fairy master into finding a boat big enough for her and her horse to row them across personally. That's where we wrap up. Any final thoughts on these chapters? Did anyone think her presence kind of undermined their whole trip in the last like three or four chapters? Like it was almost like quick travel. It's like, oh, she's here. I was like, they made it sound so hard that there's like all these like dark creatures. So I don't know if she's just like super powerful, but it's like, I don't know. It almost felt like the quick travel, like safe state. It's just like, oh, she's here, by the way. And it's like, how did how did she get there so fast? Like they made it sound difficult and she's like here now. So I don't know. I that almost seemed to like undermine the last three or four chapters for me in terms of the length of time. What if we happen to get an explanation for that of sorts in the next chapter and start to learn some things about how Nynaeve <laughs> actually got here? Yeah, I'm, I'm only partly I through 16. I, I know y'all are further ahead, so I, I definitely, I'm sure there's there, there could be an explanation for it. So curious to see how they kind of wrap that up. It does almost feel like the reverse Hobbit Lord of the Rings situation, though, right? Where in, in The Hobbit, getting to Elrond and Rivendell is like a matter of two pages or something from, from the Shire. Like Bilbo and, and the dwarves just make it there after one encounter. But in Fellowship of the Rings, it's something like two to th- three, 300 pages of difficult journeying to make it that far. And we, we had similar encounters at the end and all that. Yep. Unless I'm mixing those two up. But yeah, yeah. So I think this is kind of moving it in my brain more to the thing where like, so many of these plot points could be solved with the text. Like, if you just mm. talk to each other, <laughs> none of this book would happen. Um, like, in you know, they start talking about the dream and who are they going to tell and should they tell anyone? And like, you know, let's not tell the super powerful, knows everything <laughs> woman trying to protect us that this is happening. <laughs> let's, you know, keep it a secret. And I wrote that down in like almost every chapter. Like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my, just talk to each other. <laughs> That was driving me absolutely nuts. But they're like, well, I think we should keep this to ourselves. Why? Like, <laughs> why? <laughs> Just tell her. Definitely makes you sympathize with Moraine a little more because it's like, it's almost like that Steam game where there's like a child and you have to keep the child from harming himself in the house. And you're like <laughs> running around. And he's like trying to jump yeah. in the oven. And you have to grab the baby. And like these three <laughs> farm kids are like the dumbest kids ever. And they keep trying to make this hard for her but they're still going along with her so it's like she's like make up your mind already like are you gonna help me like are you gonna come along are you gonna make this super difficult and they're still making it super difficult like we're gonna like 
hold this information out from you. It's like this super relevant, like, hey, the, the Dark Lord is like contacting us in our dreams, but we're not going to like tell you because we don't fully trust <laughs> you yet. It's like, I don't see how that's going to go well. And it just seems, I don't know, it almost feels like plot device more than rational character yeah. thinking, but they they do seem, it does fall in line with how they've been rationalizing previous scenarios. So I don't know. They're just getting kind of frustrated. I'm not really liking the three kids at all. They need to work on their communication skills for sure, or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it does feel like Moraine's getting close to her Gandalf moment where where, where Pippin is messing around with the with the well and the dead body in the yeah. middle of Moria as they're hiding behind Noxidan. Oh, you fool of a cook. Throw yourself here next time. Save us all the trouble. Or whatever his uh, burst moment is. That was that was very good. I like that impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. Uh, the listeners won't know. I just dropped in a sound clip over <laughs> the audio here pulled from the movie. Well, uh, next time we will be reading chapters 16 to 20, where dark things go down in a place called Shadar Logoth. This episode of Wattcast was produced by yours truly. You can find me at twitter.com slash Caleb Wimble. Katie, where can people find you? KatieJarvis.com or on Instagram at 30 in LA. Dan, where can people find you? On Twitter in, and Instagram under Pansy Dan. That's P A N Z Y D A N. On both platforms and uh, at danwimble.com. Keely, what about you? Find me on Instagram and Twitter at Keely underscore Remember, you can find us all at wattcast.net and support the show at patreon.com slash wattcast. Your support means a lot. Again, even the $2 a month of the Two Rivers tier helps us keep going. Join us at the $5 Tar Valentier and you'll get access to those special bonus episodes pretty soon. You can also support us by leaving Wattcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. This helps a lot. A couple of people have left ratings already. Thank you so much for those five-star ratings. Uh, And this is, if you add a review especially, uh, the number two way we can find new listeners. The number one way is to tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth means the world to us. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening, folks. And remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time. But this is an ending. Farewell. Farewell.